Well, today we are looking at a sandwich, all right? Uh, not a sardine sandwich or an egg sandwich, uh, but a literary sandwich. Uh, and when a uh, literary sandwich is when an author describes two things that are very similar to each other or a continuation of each other, and in between, he puts in the filling, all right? And just like all the layers of the sandwich are meant to be eaten together, right? Not one layer at a time, all right? Uh, each part of a literary sandwich is meant to be read in light of the other. Now, 1 Samuel 24 to 26 is such a sandwich. In chapters 24 and 26, we've got two accounts of David doing the right thing. And they are very, very similar. And in chapter 25, sandwiched between them, we've got him nearly doing a very wrong thing. And so we're going to read them all together. Before we do that, let me remind us where we're up to in uh, 1 Samuel. Right? David is God's anointed one. He's the one God has chosen to be king. Saul, anointed many years ago, is still the king. And he's been trying to kill David. Last week, David escaped, went to the strongholds, that is the places that are hard to access, um, in the wilderness of Engedi. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 24. Saul is told, where David is, and so he brings 3,000 men out to fight him. David only has 600, so he's quite outnumbered. Saul receives a call of nature and goes into a cave to do the needful. But it is the very cave where David and his men are hiding at the back. David's men say to him, verse 4, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now the thing is, God hadn't actually said that. But Saul had fallen into a trap that David hadn't even set. Right? Must be a sign that God wants him to kill David, right? Wrong. We were warned last week not to try to fool ourselves by, by, by trying to read God's mind of circumstances. We see it here again today. We can so easily get it wrong. And we can do all kinds of wrong things on that basis with pious words and intentions. It just so happened that I met so-and-so that day, that particular day. What are the chances of that? Uh, surely it must be a sign that God wants me to get into a relationship with them. Don't try to determine God's will from circumstances, especially if it leads you to go against what he has revealed in his word. David knows that God doesn't want him to kill Saul. So he creeps up silently behind Saul while he's doing his business. Maybe he holds his nose or something like that. No? Okay. He goes up to him and he cuts off the end of his robe. That's it. He's feeling guilty even about doing that. Well, his men want him to go and kill him. But David says in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put forth my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. Right? God had anointed Saul. Only God will remove him when the time is right. David was not going to take things into his own hand. You cannot touch the Lord's anointed. And friends, David was right. The kingship of Israel foreshadowed the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And no matter how bad Saul was, he was still in an office that pointed forward to Jesus. Uh, when Peter preaches in Acts and says to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, and he says, you crucified him. That's, that's kind of the worst thing, right? You cannot touch God's anointed. And yet they, they nailed him to the cross. Saul leaves the cave. David comes up behind him, calls out to him, my lord the king. Saul looks around, and there's David, bowing before him with his face to the ground, paying homage. And he says in verse 9, David says, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your hurt? He tells Saul that he could have killed him, but he would not attack the Lord's anointed, even though Saul was trying to kill him. He shows Saul the piece that he cut from his robe. He prays in verse 12 that God would avenge him. And again in verse 15, that God would be the judge. David could have killed Saul, could have taken his revenge, could have solved his problem of being hunted and hounded, could have made himself king, but he didn't. He let God be the judge, and he trusted God to keep his promise and to rescue him from Saul. Well, Saul is touched when he realizes what David has done. He weeps, and he says to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. He acknowledges that David will surely one day be king. And he asks him to swear that he wouldn't cut off his descendants when that happens. David agrees. Saul and his men go home. But David and his men, in verse 22, go up to the strongholds, back to the hard-to-reach places in the desert. Because as dramatic as Saul appears to be, they don't trust him not to change his mind. And they are right. For one chapter later, skip chapter 25, you go to chapter 26, Saul is after David again. The Ziphites, who we saw betraying, Saul, uh, betraying David to Saul last week, they contact Saul again with detailed information. And again, Saul takes 3,000 men goes on a hunt for David. But David has his own spies, finds out where Saul is, and by night he approaches Saul's camp. From his vantage point, above the camp, he can see where Saul is sleeping, near Abner, the commander of his army, and surrounding him, the whole army. And David decides to pay Saul a visit. One of his men, called Abishai, volunteers to go down with him. So they make their way to Saul, who's fast asleep, with the spear struck, stuck to the ground beside his head. And Abner and the army all asleep around him. And Abishai says to David in chapter 26, verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I won't have to strike him twice. But once again, David spares Saul's life. He says in verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That's verse 9. And then in verse 11 he says, 
The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And what does he say in between? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he'll go into the battle and perish. He won't do it. He'll leave it to God. No matter what. No matter how many times Saul behaves despicably, despicably towards David. No matter how many times he pretends to repent and then comes after him again. Right, no matter what, David will not touch the anointed one. He will leave it to him who judges justly. Well, David and his friend just take the spear from near Saul's head, the jar of water that was beside him, they leave the camp. Which was just as easy as getting in because at the end of verse 12 we read they're all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So David goes back up to a high place. He's overlooking where Saul is, but he's safely out of reach. And he calls out to Abner. He mocks him for failing to protect the king. He shows him Saul's spear and water jar. And he reminds Saul that he's done nothing wrong, but Saul has been pursuing him all this time. Saul, again, admits that he has sinned. He's acted foolishly. He's made a big mistake. He invites David to return, promises him no harm. David sends the spear back to Saul, but he looks to the Lord, not Saul, to reward him and protect him. Saul blesses David. They part ways. David doesn't go back with him, even though Saul is inviting him to come. Because David knows that Saul still cannot be trusted. David had spared him. Not because he thought Saul could turn over a new leaf, but because it would have been wrong to kill him. And so David acted impeccably in these two incidents. He trusted God, and he did what is right. But now, remember, this is a sandwich, right? So you've got to read the whole thing together. So what's the meat? What's the filling? What's the, what's the sardines in the sandwich? Well, in between these two incidents, there's a couple of things of note. The first thing is, in chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel, that is the great prophet, the last judge of Israel, dies. And remember, Israel as a nation used to have the habit of serving God as long as their good judge was alive, and then after he died, they'll, they'll turn away from him. So you think, what's David going to be like now that, now that Samuel's dead? Now, we know already in chapter 26 he's going to do what is right. But before this happens, we see how he nearly goes off track. And chapter 25 tells us the story. You see, there's this rich man in a place called Carmel. Right? He's got 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. That's a lot. He's also got the unfortunate name, or perhaps nickname, of Nabal, which means fool. His wife Abigail is both wise and beautiful, but he is a harsh and badly behaved man who lives up to his name. David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep, and so he sends ten young men to him with a polite message. David and his men have kept an eye on Nabal's flock, and now, at a feast day, they ask for some hospitality, food and drinks, so they can enjoy a feast. Now, Baal's reaction in verse 10 is very harsh. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have cured for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? When the young men go back and tell David, he is very, very angry. They've been good to Nabal and his people. They've guarded his property for them in the wilderness. And now they're being slapped in the face. And even insulted, just like as if David is just another servant who's run away from his master. David gives the order. Everyone strap on your sword. 400 men are going to go out with David. The other 200 stay back and jaga the stuff. David is ready to attack Nabal. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, one of Nabal's men comes and tells Abigail what's happened. How David's men were so good to them in the wilderness, protecting them. And how Nabal insulted them, stirred up trouble. And no one can talk to this guy. Abigail quickly packs a big feast for David and his men. Right? The menu in verse 18 includes lots of bread and wine and mutton and roast grain and raisins and cakes of figs. Puts it all on a donkey, sends it ahead of her, and she heads out to meet David, which she assumes will be heading that way. And she's right. David had said, I guarded this fellow in the wilderness. He's repaid me evil for good. I will kill all the males who belong to him. So that was David's intention. But Abigail intercepts him. She falls before him, face to the ground, as David had fallen before Saul before. She begs him to listen to her. And she says in verse 25, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And she goes on to offer the food, to David's young men. Uh, to, she goes on to affirm that God has made promises to David, that God would avenge his enemies, that he would be king. And she asks him to act towards her such that when he does become king, he won't have grief or pangs of conscience for having shed innocent blood or having avenged himself. And she asks him to remember her when God has made him king. Now, when David hears what Abigail says, he realizes that he's nearly committed a terrible sin. He exclaims in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning there had not been left in the bar so much as one male. He accepts the gifts, and he sends her home in peace. When Abigail gets home, Nabal is having a lavish feast, and he's quite drunk. So she waits until the next morning to tell him what happened. And when she does, he is paralyzed for 10 days, probably what we would call a stroke, and then he dies. And when David hears the news, he knows two things. Number one, that God has judged Nabal, 
for him treating the anointed one the way he did. But secondly, God has kept him from doing wrong. He came that close to avenging himself instead of leaving it to God. He thanks God. He says in verse 39, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hands of Nabal and has kept his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And at the end of the story, David is so impressed with Abigail that he sends messengers to her to propose to her. And she accepts, follows his messengers, and becomes one of his wives. Well, friends, that's the, that's the sandwich. Right? As we look back on that sandwich, uh, there are four big things, I think, I want us to take away for our daily lives. Four things. Number one, let us pray that God would preserve us from sin. Let's pray that God would preserve us from sin. David did the right thing with Saul, despite the urgings of his men. And then straight after that, he nearly sinned in a terrible way. Yet God saved him from himself, yet again. And he can look back on this incident and say, thank you God for keeping me from evil. Brothers and sisters, when we have victory over sin in one area, don't let that make us complacent. The devil may very quickly tempt us in another. And while we are still thinking how good we are for avoiding one sin, we can fall into something else. Be vigilant. Be humble. Keep praying that the Lord will preserve you from sin here and sin there. Keep praying that the Lord would deliver you from sin save you from the evil one. And be thankful to God every time he stops you from sinning. And when someone falls, don't, don't think you're better than them. Just be grateful God has prevented you from doing so as well. And pray that he'll continue to do that. Pray that God would prevent you from sin. Secondly, do not take revenge. Revenge is a common thread in all these three stories, isn't it? In all these three cases, God was going to bring judgment. Both Saul and Nabal treated David despicably, but God would punish them both. David had no need to avenge himself. That was God's job. And he wouldn't. And friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one who's David life's, David's life foreshadows, also did not take revenge. We saw that in our New Testament reading today. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And the verse before that tells us that we are to follow the example of Christ and walk in his footsteps. And so even though David points forward to Christ and not to us, this particular example of David is applicable to us because that's one way in which we are meant to be imitating Christ. Are we ever tempted to take revenge into our own hands? I think that's a big temptation for many of us. Sometimes there are people who do us wrong and just can't let go. 
Now, of course, if they've committed a crime, they've got to be reported. That's, that's a different matter. But there are many times when people hurt us in a non-criminal kind of way, and we just feel the need to get back at them ourselves. Otherwise, they'll get away with it. And we can dress up our intentions, you know, using all kinds of pious language. But really, this person has done us harm. And we think the only way to feel better is to make them feel harm in return. But my friends, Jesus is the judge of the world. And he will judge with perfect justice. If justice is really what you want, then you can let go and leave it to him. It's not that vengeance won't come. It's just that you're not an avenger. It's mine to avenge, mine to repay, says the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that you now trust the person or you put yourself in a position where you're vulnerable to them again. I mean, David stayed away from Saul because he didn't trust him. And that was right. But if you really believe that Jesus will judge the world, then, then you can leave it to him to do his job, and he will. And he'll do it much better than you. Beloved, the Apostle Paul writes, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's in Romans 12. Don't take revenge. Thirdly, don't do something wrong and justify it for the, for, with the idea that it's for the sake of God's kingdom. Right? Because that's not... That's not what God's kingdom is about. God had promised to make David king in due time. And David didn't have to do wrong things in order for it to happen. David knew it would be wrong to touch the anointed one, so he trusted God. He did the right thing. Uh, even when circumstances looked like it was ideal for him to kill Saul, his men were, were, were edging him on. He would become God's king God's way. And that's the same with Jesus, isn't it? He was willing to suffer to become God's king, God's way. And friends, there will be times as we serve in God's kingdom, we seek to honor the Lord, that we are tempted to do something that is wrong, and in our sinfulness, we will try to justify it for the sake of the kingdom, or for the sake of the church. God doesn't want you to do that. Don't do that. It's God's kingdom, it's God's church. Serve God, God's way. And the final point is about responding to the anointed one. Because remember, David points forward to Jesus. So when we look at the stories of how people relate to David, we are reminded about how we should relate to Jesus. And friends, there are many people who are like Nabal who get all kinds of benefits from Jesus without even realizing it. Life, health, food, things, family, friends, work, whatever. And then Jesus comes along and makes all kinds of demands on their life. And they insult him and shrug him off. Do not be a fool like Nabal, who shrugged off God's anointed one who would not give the promised king what was owed, 
and nearly suffered his wrath. Now, of course, David would have been wrong to attack Nabal. He was not the king. But if David was the king, if he was the instrument of God's justice, the tool by which the rule of God is established, God's own instrument of retribution, then that might have been a different story, mightn't it? Part of his job would have been to deal with those who would not submit to his rule. If someone is a murderer, and then they are killed by a private citizen, that's a second murder. But if a murderer is killed by an executioner after he's found guilty and sentenced to death by a court of law, that's not a second murder. That's execution. David is a private citizen. But one day he will be king. And the same was true of Jesus. Jesus did not avenge himself on his enemies. But the day will come when he will. Not because he's changed, but because his role has changed. He will come as judge of the world. He will avenge and he will repay. And rightly so, for he will be the instrument by which God, the righteous judge, the one to whom retribution belongs, deals with his enemies. And we would be fools to act like Nabal, for there will be no escape from his wrath on that day. God warns that vengeance belongs to him. So let's make sure we're on the right side of him when the day of vengeance comes. And how do we do that? Well, look at Abigail. Like she fell down before David, we had to fall down before Jesus. And we should beg him to treat us not according to our own folly. And then listen to the words of Abigail to David in chapter 25, verse 31. He says, when the, she says, When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And the thief on the cross said to Jesus something very, very similar, didn't he? As they were both dying there. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. David had to be persuaded to do the right thing and to turn away his wrath. Jesus needs no such persuasion. His answer to the thief on the cross was immediate. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And he promises us the same treatment. For on the cross, he was dying to turn away God's wrath against our sin. He bore our sins for us on the cross that we might be forgiven. So that when he does come as judge, he would not need to condemn us. But we still need to come to him like Abigail did, to bow down before him, to cry to him for mercy, and offer him what he rightly demands, our lives. Let's make sure we do that before it's too late. So what do we learn from the sandwich today? Pray that God will preserve you from sin. Do not take revenge. Do not do something wrong to justify uh, and justify it as being for the sake of the kingdom. And most of all, respond to the anointed one in repentance and faith.